Welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm your host this week, Tom Wheeler, Executive Director of the Environmental Protection Information Center, or as we are better known in these parts, EPIC. And I am joined by my friend and colleague and co-host, Jen Colt of Humble Baykeeper. Hey, Jen. Hey, Tom. And we are also joined by HSU Assistant Professor and member of the Sea Level Rise Initiative, Jen Marlowe. Hey, Jen. Hey, Tom. And Michael Welsh, volunteer with Redwood Alliance and renewable energy enthusiast. Hey, Michael. Hello. Hey. Well, so today we are going to talk about the nuclear energy plant on on Humble Bay and and its decommissioning. Jen, cult that is. Would you set the stage for today's show? (laughs) That's fine. Yeah. So, okay, I will start off. The nuclear power plant at King Salmon was built in the mid-60s, operated until the late 70s. 76, did it shut down? Yes. Okay. It's been in the process of cooling off and then being decommissioned all these years since 1976. What we're left with, in short, is a nuclear waste site on the bluff above King Salmon, and that's what people are focusing on now is what will we do about that? But Michael can speak to some of the history, which it gets told in different parts from different perspectives. And so it's great to have someone here who actually was involved in all that way back when. So before we get into talking about the nuclear waste site and and Jen Marlowe's project working on the next phase of what do we do about this situation, Michael, why don't you tell us a little bit about the history and your involvement in the nuclear power plant situation back when it was still running and shutting it down and all that. Sure. Yeah. As you mentioned, 1976 is when it shut down. It shut down because nearby earthquake faults were discovered. Looking into that, they found a huge earthquake fault that goes almost right underneath the power plant. So it became clear that that plant was never going to run again. PG&E didn't look at it that way for the longest time and actually started working on trying to upgrade the building and make it, quote, earthquake safe, unquote. But it turned out that they just wasted that money. And through efforts with the Public Utilities Commission, uh, we actually got all that money that they spent taken out of the rate base. So we didn't have to pay for that. pg ate that one. The fuel sat in a fuel pool for a long time, for 20-some years. In 1976, the plant was shut down initially because they were doing a refueling of the plant. And so they were right in the middle of moving the fuel around. And they took essentially all the fuel out and put it in the spent fuel pool where it's been cooling both temperature-wise and radioactive-wise until they took it out of the pool and moved it into dry cask storage. And that's the way it is now. All the irradiated or spent fuel is sitting on that bluff. It's pretty safe, though. It's put into canisters, and then those canisters were put into shipping containers. And then those shipping containers were lowered into a concrete and steel vault that's on that bluff. I really can't think of anything that would disturb that in a way that would create danger for the community. It's really, really quite safe at this point. That should catch us up on on where we are with the history and what's going on with the plant and the waste at this point. 
Yeah, and I'm really glad you talked about the safety of that underground storage site because people do get really upset and emotional talking about this because nuclear waste, well, it's it's powerful stuff and and people older than, well, people at least my age remember the Three Mile Island incident. And it's, you know, it's it can be scary in part because it's hard to understand. A lot of the science behind it is difficult to understand. And so I was fortunate to get a tour of that site while the spent fuel pool was still being used. They had just taken most of the rods or maybe all of the rods out at that point. And it was just mind boggling to look down into that and tour that site, look down into the to the reactor, which was built underground. Total trip. <laughs> But Jen, why don't you tell us about your project? And and now that we're caught up to more current times, talk a little bit about what you're working on. Thanks, Jen. And thanks, Michael, too, for for still being dedicated to this, this renewable energy advocacy and to understanding the future of the Bay and to, to putting into context a long and complex history. It's important to consider sea level rise and the potential for shoreline erosion of the bluff. So currently there is a revetment wall, a riprap wall protecting the bluff. Between 1870 and 1970, there was about 1,400 feet of erosion of that bluff, about 15 feet a year. And since that riprap wall was installed in the 50s, it's really slowed down that pace of erosion. The question becomes, how can we protect that site from climate hazard, from coastline erosion, from sea level rise in the future? So the design of the ISFACI is was thought out to be able to tolerate flood debris because of the concrete vault. It was designed to be fully submerged in over 600 feet of water. So it is, it is a concrete vault, as Mike was saying. I think the question is more the integrity of the site it's on and how we can understand the changes to that site in over time. There's an extreme projection for two meters of sea level rise by 2096. That would be supported by the Ocean Protection Council, and there's a high-risk projection of two meters of sea level rise by 2093. So we can look at, say, the high-risk projection as the, the stand, this sort of assumed future projection that we need to be considerate of, or we could look at the more extreme projection of two meters of sea level rise by 2076, which would be the most protective if we're looking at how we can evaluate the potential risks to bluff inundation of that site. So we're looking at, say, two feet of sea level rise by 2076 or a little bit more conservative 2093. And at the same time, we need to understand how that riprap wall could be overtopped by sea level rise, especially during a king tide event. And if that riprap wall was overtopped by these coastal hazards, what protection would it offer for that site? Essentially, it will be islanded by 2093. All of the areas around it will be submerged by water, including King Salmon and the PG&E generating plant access roads. So with that visual, I think we need to really examine how are we going to protect the ISPACI on that site with that 
coastal hazard very well understood as a future condition that we need to plan for. Yeah, and in case people are wondering, ISFA-C stands for Independent Spent Fuel Storage Installation. That's a Nuclear Regulatory Commission acronym that we use a lot. The ISFA-C, it sounds ridiculous, but it's a lot shorter than saying the whole name, right? <laughs> and if people are curious, if you're familiar with King Salmon, basically there's a trail that you can walk below the bluff, which PG&E closes during king tides and big storms because it's dangerous. It's just at the base of a bluff. And if the waves get over the top of the riprap, there's nowhere to go. But the Isfasi is on top of basically a sandstone bluff that's about, it's what, 44 feet above sea level. Mm-hmm. And it's the town of King Salmon's tsunami evacuation area. So if you walk up that little trail, you're going right towards that nuclear waste storage site, which was always considered to be a short-term storage site because the federal government has been promising a a permanent repository since before I was born. I think it's safe to assume that that permanent repository for nuclear waste is never going to exist and that we're going to live with this forever or as long as the human imagination can can think of, which is fine. I mean, Michael and I have both talked about how important it is to keep it here and not not try to move it because of the dangers involved in trying to move it either by train or by barge or whatever. It would be very dangerous, very expensive. I kind of believe if you made it, you you get to keep it and and we should all make decisions now with that in mind, with that with that thought in mind. But what's important too is that when the SOC was built and permitted and back in way back in 2006, 15 years ago, people thought that the bluff was uplifting because they used the Crescent City tide gauge to evaluate sea level rise potential for this area. And since then, the local geologists and other experts have analyzed the situation and realized, no, there's nothing wrong with the North Spit tide gauge. It's actually that the ground beneath the bay is sinking at the same rate that sea level is rising. So while Crescent City has, it has very little relative sea level rise going on because of that uplift, the Humboldt Bay area has the fastest rate of relative sea level rise on the West Coast. Hey, Colt, Jen Marlowe talked about king tides and the risk that king tides play and how they will have the, the most water, the highest water. Can you remind me what a king tide is? And I, I think that Humboldt Bay Keeper is also studying these. And maybe you could talk about your king tide project. Sure. King tides are just a catchy term for the highest tides of the year. So the annual extreme, which tends to happen around the winter solstice, either during the new moon or the full moon in December, when it's combined oftentimes with storms, lots of rain, low atmospheric pressure, all kinds of other local factors that go into it. So what Humble Baykeeper has been doing for 10 years now is mobilizing volunteers all around the Humboldt Bay area to take photographs during these king tides, mostly showing man-made features. This, just a couple of weeks ago, we had a king tide where we focused on the old railroad tracks around the bay because of the absurd and dangerous proposal to bring coal here to Humboldt Bay to export to China. So we're looking at what it would take to rebuild 
the railroad line to support that kind of nastiness. But you can go on our website and see some of the photos. And then the, the Coastal Commission has a California King Tides project as well, where you can look at King Tide photos from all around the state. If people are from San Diego or, or San Francisco Bay Area, there's a lot of amazing photos of waves crashing over the Embarcadero and, and whatnot. But we are doing it to basically get people thinking about what a regular high tide will look like with one foot of sea level rise, because the king tide is generally about one foot higher than a typical monthly maximum, as they call it, monthly high tide. So, you know, just thinking about these extremes and how they will change relative to the built environment, relative to Highway 101, the railroad tracks, the bridges, and the nuclear waste storage site and other other important, the sewage treatment plants are another very low-lying, important infrastructure piece that we need to think about relocating before, before very long. You're listening to the Eco News Report. We're talking about the storage of spent nuclear waste on Humboldt Bay and the potential threat of sea level rise. All right. So let, let's bring it back to Jen Marlowe. So, so Jen, as I understand it, you are trying to facilitate a community dialogue about this. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about your project here? Sure, Tom. Thanks. And what we're looking at is, is really trying to face the uncertainties of unprecedented change on Humboldt Bay and to examine those infrastructures, critical infrastructure along the bay that that may be impacted by these changes. And so the idea behind the project is to, as you suggest, facilitate a collaborative dialogue among members of our community who have been invested in decommissioning the nuclear plant, who have a history of engagement on the issues, members of our community who will be directly impacted, tribal nations who have been in virtue left out of the community dialogue that's gone on over the last several decades and try to invigorate a sense of empowerment, I think, among our members of the communities so that we can understand what the potential risks are and to not throw up our hands and say, oh, this nuclear waste site is underground. We can't see it. It's out of our minds. We don't have to think about it. And to question that assumption (laughs) and to say, what values does our community have in inviting our own interests and values into the conversation to shape the future of decisions made about this site? So we're not trying to instill fear or conspiracies around future forecasting. (laughs) But what we are doing is looking at credible future climate projections and scenarios to suggest that we need to be thinking future focused, future forward, and be thinking now about 2076. And the waste site license terminates in 2065. The life of the casks expires in 2068, sea level rise of two meters could be lapping at the wall by 2076. So instead of reacting to that in that moment, how can we face the future in an informed way that's driven by sound science, but also what community members want to know and what values they want to see reflected in decisions that are made 
and how local voices, tribal affected community members can be thinking as legitimate participants in, in plans about the future of the site. Not leaving it up just to the government agencies, not leaving it up to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, to PG&E. Why don't we involve ourselves in helping imagine a safe, resilient bay and what steps we might need to take to be on a pathway for that? Yeah, and it's really important that people pay attention, too, because we're paying for this, right? Michael alluded earlier to the PG&E trying to get the ratepayers to pay for seismic upgrades that were never going to actually accomplish what the goal. I don't know if you want to speak to that a little bit, Michael, but if you're a PG&E customer and you look at your bill, it says decommissioning fund at the bottom, and we're all paying into that. And it's very expensive to maintain the ISFC and guard it and all the things that go on there. And whatever happens, whatever is done, whatever the plan is, we'll be paying for that too. The decommissioning and the and the ISFI site cost about a billion dollars. The annual cost from now until the ISFI is gone is about a million dollars a year. So it's it's not cheap. So Jen Marlowe, you talked about how how this is a long-term visioning future and how we need to have a conversation as, as Humble Bay residents about the future that we want to see. Who is in charge of this site that we are going to try to engage with? What government agencies will be regulating the installation of more riprap, perhaps, maintenance of, of this particular parcel itself? What, what, who, who, who are we going to need to communicate with? Thanks, Tom. A lot of the questions we're asking is who's legally responsible, which is not clear as is a general pattern in adaptation planning is that there's a lot of finger pointing, but there's a lot of coordination that needs to happen among uh, responsible agencies for their particular part. You can kind of unbundle it, but you can imagine the coastal reinforcement being considered by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Currently, PG&E maintains the riprap wall, but whether they will continue to do that is, a, I think, a question and how long they'll continue to do that, especially if the license expires. Are, are they going to continue to, to maintain the site? There's the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which oversees the spent nuclear waste license, which is the only license now that PG&E holds to that site since the, the plant was officially decommissioned. There is the Department of Energy that holds legal title to the waste, according to the Nuclear Waste Policy Act. There are also many other, there's the Coastal Commission, which has jurisdiction over permitting coastal development that would have to permit any kind of wall that would be built there. There's the Harbor District, which has jurisdiction over the tidelands in the bay. There's the Coast Guard, which would have to be involved in any kind of emergency accident response plan, including the Fire District. There are many more agencies, I'm not saying, the Fish and Wildlife Service, which has jurisdiction over the wildlife that that's, is sustained by that ecosystem. We have There's Humboldt County. Humboldt County. <laughs> yeah. The city of Eureka, it's not within the city, but it's within the sphere of influence of, of the city. So King Salmon, an unco- unincorporated oh, yeah. town next door. The school district, which has a, a South Bay Elementary School very close to the to the facility. So it's it, part of our work is trying to build this universe of, a, of responsible and integrated actors and try to convene them for a series of scenario planning workshops where we're going to examine 
credible science-based future projection scenarios, and then go through essentially a Socratic exercise of, well, okay, what are we going to do if this scenario is to unfold? And we're not looking at one scenario or one version of the official future, but multiple potential futures, multiple official futures, because we can't predict what is going to happen with with the repository, as Jen already mentioned, we don't know. It's very unlikely seeming that there will be a federal repository. The Biden administration is now looking at interim storage sites and is starting a process of requesting voluntary consent of communities to host interim storage, which is an interesting term in this context, interim storage. I don't know how interim (laughs) these storage sites really are, even if they're labeled as such. So there's a lot of uncertainty from a policy perspective. We're looking at some uncertainties around, are we going to have a Cascadia subduction zone earthquake? And when and what would that, how would a tsunami event impact the riprap wall? I mean, we understand from recent tsunami projections that the credible highest tsunami at a high tide would be 43 feet. The ISPC site will be high and dry, you know, with one feet of differential. However, what happens to that riprap wall during a tsunami event? That riprap wall is not above sea level. It's what's protecting that site from erosion. We need to think about this. And it's not just as simple as building a seawall or something Mm -hmm. like that, which a lot of people just think, well, why not just build a big concrete wall? Because what that often results in is just even more erosion in front of the wall. And so it may make sense in the short term, but if you look at what really the long-term effects of seawalls are, it's not going to help that much. It may be better to keep the riprap and just keep rearranging it. I do want to say that there is uncertainty around PG&E, as we all know, that has been through bankruptcy proceedings and is there's a lot of a lot to say about that that I don't have to get into, I'm sure. But Humboldt Baykeeper joined the Community Advisory Board in 2013, but Michael and Mike Manitas and Dave Meserve and a whole bunch of other people were on the Community Advisory Board throughout the entire decommissioning process. And we're working to keep the Community Advisory Board going to address what comes next rather than, okay, the decommissioning is done and PG&E can just walk away and turn to decommissioning the Diablo Canyon plant now. And so PG&E, I think Michael would be better to speak to this than I would because of his long-term work on the cab, but the the cab members were very successful and PG&E somewhat receptive to making a a much better site that they're walking away from now. They decommissioned it in a way that went above and beyond because the, the people who were on the cab insisted that it be done much more thoroughly than what was originally planned. Is that right, Michael? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I think the cab is very successful in that regard. And really, we got everything that we wanted out of the process. And I think that, yes, we need to keep the cab going so that we can address issues like sea level rise and the potential for moving the waste in the future and that sort of thing. I wanted to add to Jennifer Marlowe's list of organizations, the California Public Utilities Commission, which uh, probably ultimately would be where PG&E would have to go to get the money to to make any changes at the plant site. But yeah. Very important, very powerful, and far away 
agency to us here in Humboldt. So if people are curious about the king tides, there's another set of king tides happening the first weekend in January. So January 1st, 2nd, and 3rd will be a very high tide. The tide is predicted to be 8.8 feet at the North Spit Tide Gauge on January 2nd at 10.30 a.m. And so if you're interested in helping us document the king tide, be sure to check the tide levels and times at the specific site you're interested in going to. And you can send in your photos to kingtidephotos at gmail.com, or you can check our website, the Humboldt Baykeeper website, for more information and suggested places to go. And just check it out. It's, it's going to be really interesting to see how this unfolds over the next 10, 20, 30 years we should all be involved in the future planning for this because we know it's coming, whether it's coming in 2050, 2060, 2075, whatever. We know what's coming and we need to plan for it because if we don't, it will be a lot worse. Michael, if folks want to learn more about Redwood Alliance or the the history of this plant or anything that you'd like to direct people to, where should they go? Well, unfortunately... Redwood Alliance, now that the decommissioning is over with, Redwood Alliance is, is pretty much winding down. And, and I can see the end of it in the future, although I might personally fully intend to keep being involved in the CAB and any other efforts around the new plant and around renewable energy in our community. But I, I can't really give you any resources above and beyond what the others are, are going to offer. All right. Jen Marlowe. Where should people go to learn more information? To learn more information about our convening of community-based collaborative process around future planning for the spent fuel, they can go to 44feetabovesealevel.com. It's 44, the number. And my contact information is listed at the bottom of that page. Very cool. And that will be linked in the show notes, which you can find on the lostcoastoutpost.com. Or if you're listening as a podcast, go into your podcast feature and and scroll around and you can find it there too. Jen Colt, last thoughts? Well, if people want to learn more about the nuclear power plant, the decommissioning and the history, the 44 feet website has a ton of great information too. It is a really, really interesting resource Lots of photos from Mike Manitas from some of the tours that we had during the decommissioning. And it's just, it's fascinating. Just a a glimpse into a a past era of kind of stunning arrogance that people thought that they could just put a nuclear power plant in a community like this right next to Humboldt Bay, right across from the entrance of the bay. And it would just be there forever forever. And we would never have to worry about it again. I mean, it just, it's mind boggling when it gives you a perspective about some of the things we believe are good ideas today. I'd say. <laughs> All right. Thanks, gang. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. That was fun. That was great. Yeah. yeah thank you. Merry Christmas, all. Enjoy your time nice off. To you too. Well, on that note, We'll end today's show. This has been the Eco News Report. Join us again next week on this time and channel for more environmental news from the north coast of California.